If you grab your Bibles with me this morning, turn to the letter of James. We are enjoying our journey through this very potent yet simple letter. I love the fact that the letter of James is just on three pages of your Bible. And yet, there's so much rich work that God wants to do in and through us. We find ourselves in week 15 of our sermon series, and we're just finishing chapter 2 today. And so it's a joy to be digging into God's holy word with you. I encourage you to bring your Bibles with you to church, that we would become more and more familiar with God's holy word. If you don't have one, we have some in the back, not only to use today, but if you really don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that home, make it yours. Um, But just that we'd be a people who are just more and more falling in love with the word of God, uh, feasting on God's holy word, and growing and maturing in these truths. Um, unto all that he'd have before us. Calling our sermon series Faith at Work. And uh, we're really in the meat and potatoes of why we call it that in the text that we're in. Last week we studied the first part of this most important section of James in a sermon that I titled Dead Faith. And we're going to read that portion of the text here um, in James 2, 14 through 20 as we prepare for what I'll preach through today which is James 2, 21 through 26 in a sermon that I've titled Living Faith. Look with me at the text we covered last week, James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, And be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe. And shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is now going to move uh, into uh, looking at what living faith looks like as opposed to dead faith, as we focused on in this text last week. And so, to do that, we're really going to see again where our sermon series title comes from, Faith at Work, and see this fleshed out. Look with me, jumping in today at verse 21. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? What we're going to see today is James is going to appeal to two people whom his Jewish listeners would be very well acquainted with, and resonate with. Those two people are Abraham and Rahab. First, Abraham, we see here in verse 21. James highlights Abraham, and this is important, not because of his Jewish listeners' Jewish heritage with Abraham, Father Abraham, but because Abraham is often referred to as the father of all who believe. In lifting up Abraham here, James is actually pointing towards the fact that these are Jews who have committed their lives to Christ. They're believers now. 
And so the aspect that he's lifting up Abraham is less about Jewish heritage and more about the fact that he, as, as I said, is declared the father of all who believe. We read that in Romans 4.16. Or as Paul says in Galatians 3.7, those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. So we too who believe in this way are sons of Abraham. James is writing to believers in Jesus, those who have put their faith in Jesus as Lord, even though they're culturally or generationally Jews. It's important to see this because Abraham's faith is what causes him to be faithful in works. Just as James is saying that all of us who are true believers in Jesus will be faithful in our works. Now, if you just read verse 21, you could walk away and think that James is speaking of justification here as it relates to our standing with God. And if you did that, you would believe that one is justified or made right with God by our works. But that is not what the Bible teaches, nor is that what James is emphasizing in his letter So that is then not what he means by justified in this context. Or it would be highly um, contentious with the rest of Scripture. There are two meanings of the Greek word justified that we see used in Scripture. And we've got to do that work here. The first of those meanings is the way Paul almost always uses it in his writings, which means acquittal or to declare or treat a person as righteous. It is this use of the word justified as it relates to salvation. It's the way we would most commonly use the word. We see an example of this in Paul's words in Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified or declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. The second meaning is the way that James is using it here, the word justified, in that it's speaking of vindication or proof, like the way Jesus uses the word in Luke 7.35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is not made righteous by all her children. That doesn't make sense. It's proven. Wisdom is proven vindicated by all her children. That's the way Jesus uses it there. That's the way James is using it here. Another critical tool we have to rightly understand God's word is to read it in its context. To help us understand verse 21, we should read with it verse 22. Let's do that now. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. James is not talking about justification here, as in what happens for one to be saved. He's talking about the evidence of works for those who believe and have true saving faith, and is using Abraham as an example of that. The word that of God is clear that there are no God-honoring works without 
saving faith. Hear that again. There are no God-honoring works without saving faith, without new birth. Titus 1.15 says, To the corrupt and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Their very minds and consciences are corrupted. There is no good and acceptable works performed by those who are corrupt and unbelieving. Those without saving faith. Everything the unbeliever does is sin. One of the most famous scriptures to speak of man's best efforts to do good works apart from saving faith is found in Isaiah 64, 6. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags that the best mankind has to offer the most sacrificial, most generous, horizontal act in life that you might come up with to do before a holy God is as good as soiled menstrual rags. It's meant to be shocking language, to make its point that, that it is of no good before the holiness of God in our spiritual death, in our state of being bound, enslaved to sin. Paul helps us understand this in Romans 14, 23. Whatever is not from faith is sin. I really encourage you to meditate on that verse. It is potent. And there are depths there that we must contemplate. Whatever is not done in faith or from faith is sin. That is a sobering text. And it's meant to be. And this is why there is great faulty thinking in our society that wants to declare that someone, because they were a good person in their life, that surely God will accept them in the next. Their perceived good that an unsaved person does might be, now hear this, horizontally as far as just life on earth and in the present, might be wonderfully good, generous, loving, sacrificial. I mean, just you look at certain things that certain people do or unbelievable, like, wow, it's amazing what they did, what they gave up for someone else. But what we have to understand biblically, according to God, is that these acts, apart from faith, have, are not spiritually good in any way. Whatever is not from faith is sin. It is not good because it does not honor God. In other words, its aim is never God. Apart from saving faith, the reason why you might do something really good is on something or someone else that's not God. Therefore, it's sin. It falls short of the glory of God. 
it's not unto the one who's deserving of all honor and praise and glory. It is to make much of the creation and not the creator. Many choose to ignore this spiritual reality. And yet it is so critical we understand faith precedes any God-honoring works. Just as Abraham's obedience to God's command to take his son, his precious Isaac, to the altar came long after Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith, as we read in Genesis 15.6. Therefore, what James is saying in verse 22 is true. Faith is always active with works. True faith is active with works. This is his point the whole way. And is completed, or better understood, is proven by works. It's the same thing he's been saying the entire letter. People have really messed up these few verses we're in today. We've got to read them right and in their context. Church, true faith produces good God-honoring works. If there is no God-honoring works to follow such proclaimed faith, then the faith you proclaim is dead. It's not real. It's man-made. It's superficial. Is what the text is going to say again and again and again. Don't miss James' point as he highlights one of the greatest displays of Abraham's faith in God. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? It is one thing for you to say that you trust God with all your life and that you trust him with your loved ones. It's one thing to say that. And it is another thing to put that faith into action. To put it to the test. In all of history, we I think we have few examples that compare to the test of Abraham's faith when God told him to bring Isaac to the mountain to, to offer him as a sacrifice. I've said for years that for many, it is easier to put your own life on the altar and a far greater test or struggle for you to fully put your loved ones, your children's, your wife's, your, your, your family's life on the altar. God is not your God if you have anything that you ultimately worship and or love and adore more than Him, including really good things like children and parents loved ones if Abraham said no to God out of a greater love for his child then he would prove to lack the obedience to God that then would show his faith in God was mere words or religious fodder that as James is trying to highlight was not real but dead 
But Abraham proved his faith in God. That his faith in God was the highest. His devotion to God was above his devotion to his family. His love and satisfaction in God was greater than anything that God had created, including his loved ones. I mean, this is Isaac. Abraham and Sarah were so old. I mean, there was the, the, their lifelong passion to have kids, to have a lineage, to have a heritage. I mean, that was so massive in that day. It still is today. Finally, God's miracle, he brings forth promise. The Abrahamic covenant that he will have, they will have a son. And through that son, a lineage like no other. To compare with the stars in the heavens, it was an amazing promise. And all that's put to the test as God calls him to take that son by whom that promise has to go through to the altar. And by faith, Abraham does this. Do you see that by his works, his obedience, you see that his faith is living and not dead? Can you see in your own life evidences of true faith that is alive? Because there's evidences of you fighting sin, dying to self, to live to Christ Honor him with the way you manage your days and your hours and your money and your skills and your minutes that it belongs to him and what he declares of you and commands of you. You're his. You, and as you maturing in your faith, you're maturing in your understanding of these things and you're growing in your obedience in these things. We're not talking perfection. Perfection is what's required. But therein lies our great need for Jesus. But we won't know perfection until glory. But the scriptures are clear that true saving faith produces good works and sanctification. This is the emphasis of James. And it is a needed message for a modern day people who are surrounded by quote unquote Christianity and church movements that want to make everything really easy and shallow and come and go and no real evidence of faith and people just years and decades in superficial faith because they're going through the motions of religious practice. And yet Jesus himself in his Gospels will speak of these things again and again and again. Blessed by God to have this letter of James. Can you see in your own life the evidence of true faith that it's alive in you because there is real and ongoing evidence that you are obeying God and doing what He commands of you no matter what it costs, no matter how you feel about it? This is James' point in James 2.21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? His faith is proven by his works. It's not made right. He's not made right with God by his works. No sinner's works suffice for salvation. That is why we are desperate for Jesus and why when God gives us saving faith in Jesus' perfect works in our place, 
This is why we praise him like we do. Amen? Abraham was made right by his faith and trust in the promised one's perfect work, Christ. And his faith was proven by his good and God-honoring works. It was evidenced. It was shown. This is why James adds the clarity he does in verse 22. You see that the faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Completed here must be rightly understood. Completed here means proven, evidenced. Not completed as in finished. Some will read the scripture and say, see, you're, you're, yeah, faith in God, that's good, but you also have to perform works in order to be saved, to complete that salvation. That's heresy. It's not what God's word teaches. The work, hear this clearly, the work that is needed for justification with God, a right relationship with God, that work was finished on the cross of Calvary. Only Jesus' spotless record can pay for our stained record. We offer and contribute nothing. I pray that's good news to you. Some of you might be here going, I've got a little bit of religion. I don't really understand all this, but I've always thought like, I've got to perform to be right with God. No, you are desperate for Jesus' perfect record alone to be right with God. And it is by trusting your life to him that you are made right with God. So when James says that Abraham's faith was completed by his works, he's not saying his faith in the promised one for salvation was incomplete, therefore it needed completion, but that his faith was worked out or lived out or shown by his good God-honoring works. We, we see this language in other exhortations, in case you're feeling like this is unique to James. Let me give you an example. Paul says this to the church in Philippi, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, the shepherd talking to the flock, hold them accountable to continue to honor God and obey him. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. A naive reading of this passage could cause you to say, it's up to me to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, better be really scared, because in case you don't do it right, you might not get it. No, serious, there's a lot of people who have read that verse that way. Work out here doesn't mean complete or finish. It means live out your salvation. It means be who you now are in Christ, alive in Christ. Don't just proclaim Jesus as Lord and then live like you are Lord. No, with fear and trembling, with high respect and awe of God, do works that honor Christ as Lord. Can you do those works that honor Christ as Lord if you're not saved? No. So it's the working out of what God has done in you in salvation. 
And that point is made here. God, ultimately it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God's work in and through us. As the gospel comes into view, as the power of God, clarity of God comes into view, and conviction of sin, it's God's work. It's not up to you to pull up your bootstraps and go to work. No, his point is that the evidence of life, of faith in God, is a life that honors God and obeys God. If it's just a proclamation you say and there's no evidence behind it, that proclamation is not real. It's religious. It's man-made. Jesus said in John 15, 8, By this my Father is glorified. By what? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He didn't say so earn to be my disciples. So prove, evidence, show that you are truly mine. Because of what? The fruit of the Spirit at work in your life. The work of God in and through you. To sanctify, to to move you to, to work and to speak in ways that honor God. In other words, live out your salvation with bearing much fruit of the Spirit, good God-honoring works, and so prove to be my disciples. So prove to be those with a living faith, not a fake or superficial or dead faith. Look with me at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, And it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. The scripture James is quoting here is Genesis 15, verse 6, which says, And he believed the Lord, he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God counted it to him as righteousness. So again, we're seeing here that James' context is declaring Abraham believed and was counted as righteous. And then in the other verse, he's talking about how that worked out in his obedience. It's important that we understand God's work of imputation here. It's the big theological word. It's very important for us to understand how it works. Imputation defined as this, to attribute or ascribe or credit you with something that's not yours. We first see imputation in the narrative of mankind at the fall of mankind. Because Adam, the first man, the one God declared to be the federal head of all mankind, because he sinned, all mankind was credited sin. And you might say, I don't really like that economy. And it's been important to point out before that not only would we all likely fail in the same way, we don't even need to go there. Because who chose Adam to be the federal head of all of mankind? God did. 
And therefore, Adam is the perfect and the best federal head for all of mankind in the creation of the world. God did not make a mistake in that. So we don't get a revolt and say, I wish you would have picked someone better. Here's the other reason why we don't get to pick at the economy of imputation through Adam, by which we're all credited sin, is because you would have no hope for new life without the economy of imputation, without the economy of being credited with something that belonged to someone else, i.e. the fact that those who God has chosen to give saving faith, he credits us with the perfect record of the only one who was ever perfect. None of that's ours. Credits us with that. The only way by which we're saved and meet the perfect standard of God is the perfect record of Jesus Christ credited to us. Amen? Do you see that? Jesus Christ, God the Son, takes on flesh in the Incarnation, lives in perfection without sin, substitutes himself in our place by being credited with our sin on the cross. He bears our due wrath because of our sin, and we are credited with his perfect righteousness. The only way by which you and I stand before a holy God for eternity. Paul speaks of this in Romans 4 and see how closely it relates to what we're studying in James. Romans 4, 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to his flesh? What did he gain? What did he do that gained him anything? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But as we've already talked about, any of the good works that he did that he'd be sinfully excited to boast about would not be something he'd boast about before God because before God they're like filthy menstrual rags by which he would not be excited to boast. That's why he says, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, credited to him as righteousness. He had faith. He's credited righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted to him as a gift, but as his due. The wages of sin is death. We earn sin. We earn death because of our sin. It's our due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Abraham was a sinner saved by grace. If justified by works, Abraham is doomed, and so are every one of the rest of us. Because 
As we emphasized last week, all our works fall grossly short of the glorious standard, which is God's perfection. It is so important that you see we are not saved or credited with righteousness by God for anything we do. The righteousness laid upon Abraham and those who truly trust in Jesus is God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness. It is not something Abraham earned or produced. The Bible says that even the faith we have in God is a gift from God. So we have nothing to boast in. It's a gift from God. Philippians 1.29, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 speak of these truths. Now, now hear this clearly as, as by way of transition to verse 24. If we didn't already have a huge base of understanding in Holy Scripture that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if we didn't have a clear aim in all that James is saying already in his letter to the point that true faith produces works, and if we didn't already have a good understanding that James is not talking about justification as in salvation, but in regards to vindication or proof, if we didn't have all that, then we might read verse 24 alone and really start misunderstanding how things work. And you'll get why as I read verse 24. Read it with me. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. (laughs) And this is it. This is the tripping point. This has launched false religions. This verse. This whole section of text not understood in Sola Scriptura, not understood with all of God's Word informing it, not understood in its context, brings us to gross error in how we are saved. Sadly, people knocking on your door all the time, trying to earn their way to heaven because of this text. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Is James contradicting biblical teaching on justification? No. He is saying that no one is justified by dead faith. And all of our work up to this point and following in its context proves that that's what he's saying here. When he says faith alone here, he means faith that stays alone. Therefore, already defined by James as dead faith. He is saying that no one is justified by dead faith. James' entire emphasis before this is that faith that is proclaimed but, not, but does not produce good God-honoring works is dead. It is not saving. It is good for nothing. He has used bold and harsh and poignant language. Those who think, because they said a few words of commitment back in the day, but then show no real fruit of new birth, no ongoing conviction for God, His ways, His word, to honor Him with their lives, and grow in His his bride and the church. He's, He's saying that faith that remains alone is good for nothing. 
A person is proven by their works and not by a faith that stays alone. It's evidenced by their works and not by a prayer they said in 1972 and they hang their hat on that and then they go about their life living for the flesh. That's James' point. Without the proof of transformation and sanctification, a life that honors God, if there's no evidence of that, then the faith you think you have is dead. It's not real. That's his loving point. How gross and disgusting it is for people to think they're saved and good with God and will stand before him one day and as Jesus testified again and again and again, he will look at them and say, I never knew you. That's why this text is so loving and why you being here is good and why it should shape the way you not only think and, and evaluate your own life and look at these truths, but your loved ones and stop saying things to them that are not true or about them that are not true, at least according to Scripture. So when he says here in verse 24, a person is proven by works and not by faith alone, he's saying what he's been saying the whole time. Faith that remains alone is good for nothing. Not because it's made effective by our works, but because it's not shown to be displayed by our works. What God has done on the inside James is saying, is going to be evidenced on the outside. I said it last week. I'll say it again today. We are saved by faith alone. You bring nothing. There's nothing you do that finishes, qualifies, nothing. Nothing we do. You're saved by faith alone. Trust in Jesus alone. Nothing you do. But that faith, if it's real, does not remain alone. It goes to work. That's the point. Now let's look at a very different person who has the same saving faith and produces good works, but the person's completely on the other end of the spectrum of people in life. He says in verse 25, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger's and sent them out by another way. The second person James uses is to show that faith shows itself in works is totally the opposite of the first one. Totally the opposite of Abraham. Rahab is a woman, a Gentile, and a prostitute by practice. And God does this amazing work in her life to bring her saving faith that we see evidenced in her works. And this is a great gift because Abraham is the patriarch of the Jews, a, a moral man of high standing, a, a Chaldean. His birthright is amazing. And then you have this immoral outcast who's a Canaanite. But like Abraham, Rahab exercises great faith in God in a situation that could mean her demise. As testified in Hebrews 11.31, she's in the Faith Hall of Fame, as we like to call it. 
By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with all who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Like Abraham, who is a sinner, Abraham a sinner who had his issues, Rahab is guilty of lying, guilty of having practiced a very detestable profession. Because of her faith in God, she honored the Lord and was counted righteous for her faith. Both Abraham and Rahab put what mattered most to them on the line and in doing that exercised their faith in God-honoring works. It is at these crossroads of life that we are confronted with. These are opportunities to prove our proclaimed faith that it's not dead but alive. That it's true and not superficial. It is one thing to say you trust God in His perfect plan despite what you face or how much it might contradict your plan for your life or the life of your, your loved ones. It's one thing to say that. And it's another thing to actually live it out in faith. In God-honoring obedience. Church, I just ask you personally, for yourself, how is your faith in God lived out in life? How is it alive? How is your faith not just an ideal or a past proclamation or a badge you wear, but a reality in how you live? How much you truly trust God is proved in how you remain faithful and honor and obey Him, even when it's incredibly hard. Or not what you would personally do if up to you. Finally, look at verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James loves his blood-bought brothers and sisters so much, he circles back to say it again. I said it last week, I'll say it this week. It feels like this is really repetitive. It's meant to be. It's why James, in this text, is really repetitive. Because we struggle to really rightly understand and see the way to this. He finishes chapter 2 of, this, of his letter with him reiterating a central point. Faith without works is dead. Similar, poignant words like we saw in verse 17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Like in verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. James declares that this, he declares it once again, but this time he adds an analogy. What's the analogy? He compares faith and work with the body and the spirit. A body apart from the spirit is dead. My mom passed at the young age of 60. I'll never forget the day I walked into her room after she had passed. Her body was stiff and cold and gray. She clearly was dead. My mom was clearly not there anymore. The shell of her body alone was there. We see this on the reverse in the creation of man. Genesis 2.7 Then the Lord God formed the man of dust 
of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils. You don't breathe into nostrils if there's not a body. Mix the body, breathe into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The man was not a living creature when just the body was there. It needed the breath of life. It needed the spirit. Only when God breathed life into the frame did the body become a living creature. This is the most elementary reality of physical life. And James is highlighting that the proclamation of faith without a life that lives out that faith means that faith is not living, it's dead, it's useless, it's man-made. True Christians are people who don't just proclaim Jesus as Lord. Their lives are forever transformed because of his saving them, because he is Lord of their lives. See, those two things have got to go together. Savior and Lord is critical for the reality of truly being saved. If someone asks you what is the difference between your life before God saved you and after, there's two facets to that answer. One is for you to say, I was condemned to eternal torment because my sin earned me that. But now I am adopted into God's family because of the perfect substitutional work of Jesus on my behalf. That's good news. And we should show, say, or even better, display the other facet to the answer. How are you different before God saved you and after? I was Lord of my own life and did what my sinful flesh wanted to do before I was saved. And now Jesus is the Lord of my life and I do all that he commands me to do. Back here, I never did one thing unto the glory of the Lord. Now the power to honor him every day and everything is in me, although not in glory and perfection yet, the reality to do that is real before me now if I'm saved. But oh, how prone our flesh is to want to use God to get to something else. And when confronted by the thing you truly love and desire, maybe more than God, more than the God you claim to trust in, for far too many, it's too easy for them to walk away out of the love affair for something God created or devotion to it or a lack of willingness to obey God's commands. And if, if that's the case, then Jesus is not Lord. You still are. He's just the means to another end. And when that stopped, you said, I tap out, I'll go do something different. That's not saving faith that endures to the end. True saving faith is a faith that goes to work. It trusts God. It obeys God. It serves God. Somewhat ironically, the great reformer Martin Luther, who struggled to rightly read and understand James and is known for that, so eloquently says in an opening commentary to the book of Romans exactly what James is teaching and speaking of here in James 2, 14 through 26. 
these two passages we've read last week and this week. Hear Luther's words. Oh, it is living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question rises, it has already done them. It is always doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. He gropes and he looks about after faith and good works and knows neither faith nor what good works are. Though he talks and talks with many words about faith, and good works. Church, this is real. It's real. We've cried many tears. Too many people that I love, people who have walked with us in our church, people who claim an overwhelming love and devotion for Jesus, who are confronted with his authoritative word, What he calls them to do as children of God. They literally get up and walk out of my office. Or leave our church. Because they don't want to obey God. They don't want to heed his word and his warning. They don't want to know it better and wrestle. They want to be right in their own eyes. They want to have it their way. They do this according to James, according to Scripture, because the faith they claim to have in Jesus, the trust they claim to have in God, the transformation, transformed person they claim to be, is nothing more than a masquerade. And you might say, Pastor, man, that feels harsh. That feels like, really? that <laughs> We just got done preaching through John for two years. And Jesus speaks of superficial faith and the reality of people who look like disciples who walked away all the time. If you're wrestling with that, that feels, it's just the way our modern-day Christianity has sat down. And I just pray that we're a people that heed the word of God and are awakened to these truths. masquerade is a man-made belief and something that has not transformed them or truly made them new. It lacks true evidence of new birth or the indwelling spirit of God to bring conviction unto repentance. Will there be moments or things or situations where you really struggle? Yes. Yes. And that's the beautiful journey of what it means to be the church to cry out to each other and say, I need, I need you here, I need you here. Help me honor God. Help me not do what my flesh wants to do. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. To endure together, to fight together, to cry together, to mature together. That the fruit of the Spirit would be at work. The fruit of the tree that's alive would be evident. 
I pray none of you are content just to hear today, but not do what God's Word teaches. I pray that none of you are confronted by the Spirit of God or the the Word of God or a brother or sister in Christ confronted with sin in your life, but instead of confessing it or asking for help to fight it, as much as you're wrestling or or fighting it, that you do, you you repent, you you take up a new course, you, you, you you take up a new practice, you take up a new priority. Why? Because your life doesn't belong to you anymore. This, this is Jesus' message again and again. And, and there's a modern day thing out there that is Kool-Aid compared to what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? My disciples will take up their cross and follow me. For a long time I wanted to rename the church Crucified Church. And then we started imagining crucified kids and all this. Like It just started going sideways. But it is the message of Jesus. It is the church at work. We're dying to ourselves to live to Christ. And that's so opposite to the modern day thing that's out there. That's so about you and me and making it all about us and comfortable and experiences and thin and shallow. You guys, it's about God. And it is our joy to be His, our joy to become known and walk together and enjoy Him and honor Him as He works in and through us. To raise a generation of children and have a testimony to others that just, it does, it looks. The Word of God says to unbelievers what we are and what we do and what we stand for is crazy to them. Folly. Insane. Why? Because they're unbelievers. They're not spiritually discerned. They don't get it. I just want to close with a testimony of praise. Just in preparation for today's sermon and just thinking about all that God's doing. God is at work in this church. We're in our 129th year. A great reformation began about 10 years ago. But many women are coming from all kinds of unbelieving backgrounds or other church experiences, we're discovering and are discovering a work of the Holy Spirit that is alive in the people of Disciples Church. A growing number of people are not only hearing the Word of God, but believing it and then living it out. It's transforming, it's convicting, and it's motivating. It's maturing. It's doing this to marriages, to parenting, Friendships, to work relationships, neighbor relationships. I praise God for this. For His great work in us. For His saving grace. Jesus' substitutional work. The Holy Spirit's work in us. And in His word to mature disciples of Christ. He is the one do all the praise. Amen? May it continue to be so. Let's stand together, worship him in closing, pray to our good God. Father, we thank you for this time together in your holy word. That you have helped us through all of the word to have clarity 
of these things that for many in their sin and ignorance has led to misunderstanding and false religion and belief. We have nothing to boast in. But you alone are worthy of our praise, for you alone saved us by grace. We did not deserve, nor were you obligated to give it. And have set us free from our shackle of sin to now have fight. The work of the Holy Spirit, a war with the flesh is real every day. And yet the evidence of new birth, the evidence of true faith, is a conviction to honor God and to fight that sin, to turn from it and to mature in you. And I pray that would happen among our people. And I pray that if there are some in the room who by these clarities are coming to see that maybe what they have is superficial faith, it is by your grace in many of the past you have used Days and sermons like this and times like this to do your sovereign work in someone's life to finally bring the gospel to light and view unto true repentance of sin and belief in Christ alone. I pray that be the case that new people, that people are born again today, not just in our church, but around our city and the world. And men are humble enough to be willing to slow down and sit with their wives and say, I, I have been failing to really lead us and there's conviction and there's priority and there's opportunity to really change and I want to do that. And I have a lot of growing to do and that's okay that they would lean in and know other men and mature and grow together. That wives would, would pull their husbands aside and truly say, I want to honor you. I want to honor Christ and who I am in this household. I want my joy to be in the Lord and not in the things of, of creation. For children to to grow up in these truths, especially our kids who, who need to move from just knowing that God loves them and, and that they love God and this thing that is being raised in the church unto true saving faith. Where they see their sin and they see their desperate need for Christ and they're truly born again. I thank you for the work you're doing in our children. Father, for just the unity of this diverse community and how you're drawing us together. We love you. We worship you. I pray that the beauty of the gospel, the message of the cross, would bid us come and die. That you would live and reign and be magnified in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.